say goodbye to the ashes, goodbye, old flames. You're making room for something new, you don't know its name. Before 2017, most Northern Californians gave little thought to fire danger. Then, we began talking about fire season, something we worried about from August through October. This year, though, with the dry landscape caused by California's historic drought, our fears began in June and probably won't subside until well after Thanksgiving. In Sonoma County, the disasters keep coming we're left with a collective sense of trauma that's triggered each time the air is too hot and windy or too smoky to breathe, or we hear fire engines zipping by. We huddle in our homes and endure the rolling blackouts. We keep bags with our most important possessions beside our beds each night, ready to flee. Our emergency apps ping and beep, telling us we're in a warning zone that could turn into mandatory evacuation. And when it does, We shove our belongings and pets into the car and worry whether it will be our neighborhood, our home, that the fire destroys. These are not isolated one-time events. They keep happening. And in addition to the impact of these disasters on our mental health, our bodies, and our spirits, there's a real financial cost. A cost that makes practical life harder, especially for people already living on the edge economically. These disasters have contributed to a housing shortage. And with the cost to buy or rent a home already high in the Bay Area, the lack of available homes has driven the prices even higher. The median home price in Sonoma County was over $760,000. That's quite a bit more than double the median sales price of $348,000 for homes throughout the United States. All of this is probably a big part of the reason that Sonoma County's population has been decreasing every year since 2017, the year that we started experiencing regular fire seasons. Previously, the county's population had grown every year since records were first kept in the mid-1800s. So why do people leave? Why do people stay? In the final episode of Chronic Catastrophe, we ask, is it worth it? 
Is it worth it to stay in a place where the effects of climate change are relentlessly brutal? And if not, where do you go to escape? I'm Rebecca Bell, and this is the fourth and final episode of Chronic Catastrophe. Is it worth it? In the past three episodes, you've heard how repeated environmental disasters affect our minds, bodies, and spirits. You've learned about the six phases of mental health we go through during and after a disaster. And you know it might be time to readdress how we see PTSD when it comes to living in a place where disasters never seem to end. You've learned our physical health is affected too, and not just because bad air is hard on our lungs but because it also affects our ability to think clearly in a crisis. And that the toxins unleashed can cause disease that might not appear until decades later. And you've heard about how people, families, and communities are changed afterward, how new identities emerge. We brought you these lessons through stories of people who lived them, people like Ty and Seamus, like Stacy and Larry. Now it's time for us to pose perhaps the most important question of all. Do they still want to call Sonoma County home? Remember Stacy from episode one? She and her partner Taylor and their four-month-old baby lost their home in the October 2017 nuns fire. They had lived in a small cottage full of artistic touches and unique artifacts that Stacy had gathered over the years. Their home was located at the upper end of a long, winding, wooded road with a panoramic view of the Sonoma Valley. After they had safely evacuated from their home on the mountain, Taylor drove back up to retrieve a few necessities and their home sweet home sign. The sign is all that's left of their cottage. Before the fire, Stacy would take baby Otis on daily walks straight from their front door through the woods to waterfalls, creeks, and ponds. Their landlady was a close friend and lived in a home on the same property. They often got together to share food and conversation. It was idyllic. Taylor was a vineyard manager at the time, and Stacy an elementary school teacher and musician. It was her voice that opened this episode, with her original song titled The Phoenix Song. She wrote it after the fire during the honeymoon phase, when she felt supported and lucky that they had survived. She said she felt like a phoenix rising from the ashes. And the first verse that I wrote, I would say, is really about hope. And, you know, the lines say that uh, it gets too dark to see sometimes, but underneath everything there are a million tiny seeds, and one day they will grow and bring you your wings. And I really believed that at the time, and the chorus is about rising up and spreading those wings. I felt like, yes, we've we've all, we've been through struggle before. We've done this before. We'll rise up again. It's a beautiful message with a positive outlook. And it makes you think that Stacy was in a good place about her altered life in Sonoma County. But it's not so straightforward. And I couldn't finish that song. I only had the first verse for a long time. I would say it was hard for me to play that song for a year or so. 
And I couldn't come up with the second verse. And I think there was some part of me that lost that spirit that started feeling like, I'm not sure we are rising up from this. I don't know that we can do this like we've always done. And so that song kind of sat on the shelf. As Stacy's emotional response to the fire has evolved over the past few years, so have her feelings about staying in Sonoma County. I would say that my attitude has shifted now, and as much as I love Sonoma County, and I've been here for close to 20 years total, part of me can't imagine living anywhere else, and I love the land, and I love the people, but I also really worry about our future here, um, the future of my child being here, and it's harder for me to imagine to envision what our future could look like here. And that's hard to say because I really love this place and don't really see myself anywhere else. So I feel a little stuck there. (laughs) When asked whether it was worth it to stay in Sonoma, Stacy didn't have an easy answer because she is also taking into consideration the needs and desires of her partner and her four-year-old son. I know what my partner would say. And he would say, yes, he's his, he's kind of born and bred Sonoma boy, um, longstanding family roots here. And he would say that this is about adaptability and we have to adapt to these changes and we should teach our child how to adapt to these changes. And part of me agrees with that, but it's hard to feel like you can adapt to breathing smoky air. <laughs> three, four months of the year or, or even living in a place where, and, and I, I worry about this because I feel like if, if we're struggling to afford the cost of living here, what's it going to be like in 10 or 20 years for our son? And do we want to raise him and give him roots in a place where it feels like he will always be struggling as well? Sonoma County Supervisor Linda Hopkins also expressed concern for the future of children living through repeat natural disasters. In addition to being an elected official representing the western region of Sonoma County, which has experienced both floods and fires, Hopkins is an author, farmer, former journalist, and the mother of three young children. And there's a direct correlation between adverse childhood experiences and your lifetime educational attainment or your chances of winding up in the criminal justice system or your lifetime earnings. And so I wonder what happens when an entire generation goes through repeat trauma of these kinds of disasters every year. Concern for how repeated fires affect children have been echoed by parents throughout the region. Hopkins constituents have spoken to her about their own young children. I've heard heartbreaking stories from fellow parents whose children still wake up at night screaming with nightmares because they literally fled for their lives, you know, running away from a wildfire with pretty much only the clothes on their back. Um, You know, and the parents come to me, I get emotional because they come to me in tears. You know, they feel like they can't protect their kids from this level of crisis, from this level of trauma. And I really don't think that we're going to see the ramifications for quite some time. Um, You know, because kids take a while to process things and because trauma is also something that is internalized and often comes up later in your life. You met Seamus Reed in Episodes 1 and 3. He was barely 18, and in his first semester at Santa Rosa Junior College, when his family lost their home in the Tubbs Fire in 2017. Seamus didn't lose just his home, 
He lost his entire neighborhood. 1,200 homes burned there. He lived in Coffee Park, the neighborhood that suffered the most damage in a fire that, at the time, was the biggest, most destructive, and most expensive in California history. Coffee Park is solidly suburban, and not in the wildlife-urban interface, which is typically the most fire-prone type of populated area. For him, the emotional effects of the fires are nuanced. Although it was devastating to have the home where he grew up destroyed in a fire, the experience also helped him mature and be stronger. I think that having that much change forced on me over such a small amount of time, I think that made me a little harder to shake in terms of just general, you know, dealing with humans, dealing with hardships. It were things that might have made me panic in high school. Don't particularly bother me now. This is exactly the kind of resilience and recovery every parent would hope for their child. Seamus attended Santa Rosa Junior College and is now a student at UC Davis. And although he is successfully launching, his ability to recover and rebound have in large part come from separating himself from the place where he grew up, the place where the most traumatic experience of his life occurred. I mean, I lived in Sonoma County 90% of my life, and as much as I love it, as, as beautiful as it is, I, I am very excited to go and, and see some more of California and see some more of the world and live there, you know? Part of the reason Seamus is excited to live in Davis is because it feels safer, less fire-prone. Davis is near Sacramento. It's flatter than Sonoma County and surrounded by farmland rather than forested areas. I would like to live in a place that doesn't have that threat looming every year. It's intimidating, you know, to think about the same situation that I was in in 2017, which was not fun. And that powerless feeling that you get, and, you know, we've been evacuated I think twice since 2017 from our apartment, um, which was on the um, southwest side of town. And you know, that was in the middle of the city and we still had to leave again. So the idea that no matter where you live in Sonoma County, you're gonna have to pack up and leave again, essentially is, is paralyzing. Seamus's aversion to living in Sonoma County is in contrast to his parents who had a new home built in the plot where their old home once stood. I don't think I would have made the same choice to rebuild the house on the same plot, especially in 2017 and 2018 when I was living in an apartment that wasn't particularly nice. I wanted I wanted to leave desperately, you know, and, and the idea of rebuilding in the same plot that has been historically a path for wildfires, it, I wouldn't have made that same decision that my parents made to rebuild. I can't speak for them, of course, but I, I don't know if they have sentimental attachments to the plot of land. I'm, we all did have those attachments to the house and the things that the house represented, but those things are gone. After four consecutive years of natural disasters, Supervisor Linda Hopkins agonizes over how living in an area prone to fires affects the well-being of her three young children. Her family has a strong connection to Sonoma County. They live on land that has been in her husband's family for generations and where they run an organic farm. 
it's a crazy thought to consider uprooting yourself from the place that you love, where you have put down roots. And yet it's also crazy to think about living forever in a place that catches on fire every year. I mean, this past year, my kids were inside for two months pretty much straight, not just because of distance learning, but because of the smoke in the sky, where it wasn't safe for them to actually go outside and breathe the air. And one of the reasons that we love Sonoma County so much is the outdoors, is the opportunity to go on fantastic hikes. And so when that is taken away from you, it certainly causes you to question Um, you know, some of the things that you most love about Sonoma County. It also introduces a tremendous sense of loss um, because, you know, the Sonoma County that my husband grew up in is so different from the Sonoma County that my kids grew up in. He never had to stay home from school as a result of wildfires. Yes, there were fires, but they weren't as devastating as the ones we see today. Although Supervisor Hopkins has thought about leaving, Ultimately, she sees what the county is going through as an opportunity to be a model for how other regions can adapt to climate change. To be candid, it is a question that I have asked myself. Is it worth it to keep living in Sonoma County? Um, You know, I think that many of us, even those who just are absolutely in love with this county and can never imagine ourselves living anywhere else at some point, have been browsing real estate listings somewhere that doesn't catch on fire every single year. Um, And yet, I feel like we also need to adapt. Um, you know, we need to do better. And I also think that there's an opportunity for folks who live in places like Sonoma County that are so much on the front lines of climate change to be a model for the entire country or the entire world in terms of climate adaptation and mitigation. You know, we want to get in Sonoma County to net zero carbon emissions by 2030. We want to come up with bold strategies to address climate change, and we want to find ways of living in this new world that we find ourselves in? How can we work on home hardening? How can we work on wildfire risk reduction? How can we find out maybe there are some places that we shouldn't be living in the county or that we should be discouraging, you know, development? We need to also make sure that our land use policies are keeping up to pace with climate change. She's not just talking about fires. More than 2,000 homes and businesses were flooded in February 2019, during a storm that led to a catastrophic flood along the Russian River, affecting two dozen towns in Sonoma County. Approximately 3,600 residents were evacuated. Floods are expensive. The 2019 flood cost an estimated $150 million in private property damage and nearly $56 million in damage to infrastructure and public property. Plus, it cost the county an additional $30 million in emergency response services and debris removal. Around the world, there have been more frequent 100-year floods due to climate change. Globally, we need to find solutions to protect property and people. Hopkins describes some of the solutions that Sonoma County has implemented to protect property from flooding, and that could be a model for other regions. So we actually do have a a very successful uh, program for home elevation. Um, for basically lifting people out of the floodplain. And essentially, the federal government finally realized that Sonoma County was literally the most expensive county west of the Mississippi when it came to repeat flood damage, and that it made a heck of a lot more sense to spend ten, twenty, even $30,000 um, to actually elevate a house out of the floodplain as opposed to trying to pick up the pieces and provide reimbursement for all of the damage after the fact. I think that a similar program in terms of upstream investments is very much needed from FEMA. I mean, we are now spending billions of dollars a year of federal government money 
on cleaning up from and recovering from wildfires. If we took one-tenth of the amount of money that we're currently investing in recovery and put it into prevention, we could do a heck of a lot of good in California and in Sonoma County. But the federal government is lagging when it comes to preventative measures for protecting property, homes, and livelihoods from fire damage. A major problem is that the financial incentives are all designed for rebuilding in the same fire-prone areas. Either the fire victims rebuild their homes, or they sell the plot to someone else who will build on that land. It's not economically feasible to let those plots go vacant. This needs to change. Hopkins explains. One of the challenges of being a policymaker after a disaster is that you don't have the tools at your disposal that you need. Right now, we don't have any federal program that could potentially buy out properties, um, you know, in high wildfire risk areas. So, you know, you can't ask a local government official to tell someone who has just lost everything that they're also losing the entire value of their of their land and all of their life savings. That's forcing someone into bankruptcy. That's putting someone out on the streets. That's, an, you know, a take of, of the last thing that they have left to their name. And so I really think that we need to start thinking strategically about how do we provide incentives for development in appropriate areas and how can we potentially offer a lifeline to folks who maybe they don't actually want to rebuild. In the 2020 Wallbridge fire in West County, Hopkins visited a longtime ranching family who lived in a rugged rural area. The rancher's home had burned down. She gave him her cell phone number and told him to contact her if he needed any help with the permitting process. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I, I don't know if I want to rebuild. You know, I love living here. For decades, I loved living here. But that was then. And this is now. And the world has changed. Um, and so there was a recognition that the increasing threat of, you know, wildfires is changing the way that people feel about living in some of these, especially difficult to access areas. And so I think that, you know, even some folks who could never have imagined saying this before might be open to a program that would buy them out, you know, that would offer them a financial incentive to move to somewhere with a lower wildfire risk. Fire victims who need to make serious decisions about whether or not to rebuild are not the only ones facing financial hardship due to environmental disasters. People whose homes didn't burn or fill with water and debris were also affected. Many businesses have burned down or have been lost to flooding in recent years, causing loss of jobs and livelihood for employees and business owners. Many people renting homes did not have rental insurance, and the cost of replacing all of their belongings was overwhelming. In some cases, wealthier homeowners who lost their homes moved into their rental properties, thereby displacing the renters who had been living there. And they often don't have the resources to bounce back. The poorest people in the community bear the brunt of every natural disaster. Hopkins is keenly aware of this. One of the things that we identified during and after the 2017 wildfires is that every single disaster we have essentially exacerbates pre-existing socioeconomic disparities. So the folks who are struggling, they're going to struggle even more um, because those few days out of work while they were evacuated um, are so much more impactful to their ability to pay rent. But we often would have situations wherein, say, someone's primary home burned down. They then moved into their second home, which was previously rented to a long-term tenant. The long-term tenant was then displaced and, you know, basically had to go back out onto the open marketplace for rents at a time when rents were insanely expensive because a substantial amount of housing had burned down. And oftentimes, federal relief and 
obviously insurance coverage and those kinds of things, they're not available to that tenant who experiences secondary displacement. So we saw, you know, negative impacts not only with respect to income, but also on the housing side of things. And when you experience that kind of catastrophic loss of housing, we did see a resultant increase in um, housing costs in our county, which again hit our most vulnerable community members the hardest. Amanda Staswitz is a social scientist who has a doctorate in natural resources and society. She specializes in the human and social component of wildfires. She agrees that socioeconomics plays a role in how someone recovers from a fire. And she points out that education and income level also affect one's ability to mitigate risk. Socioeconomics is going to play into fire management um, quite a bit, but I think the underlying culture that's related to that socioeconomic status um, and how it manifests in a locality is what's important. She explained that some retirees struggle to mitigate fire risks to their properties due to limited financial resources or not having the physical ability to prepare their properties. This can also affect their ability to evacuate. They also may be individuals who have disabilities or are going to struggle to evacuate. We do see in a lot of our fires that the individuals who do um, die during our fire events, it's sometimes it's heart attacks. It's older individuals who are struggling, who are trying to evacuate and have some other complication arise during the event. Paradoxically, a lot of the grant programs for fire victims cater to the higher socioeconomic classes because those are the people who will have the higher education levels, grant writing skills, and financial resources to get the grants. That's something that we do need to think about is what are, you know, are these programs helping the people who need the help the most? Because another thing with our policies is that we want to see success. We want to measure success. So those communities who tend to be more affluent and have those skills also have that capacity already. So if we give them grant money, we know within five years that project's going to get done. Whereas if we gave it to maybe a more rural area or lower socioeconomic class area that doesn't have those skills, that's going to take us longer to reach that success metric or it might fail. So do we still do that? How do we deal with that socioeconomic gap or barrier? She makes an intriguing point that socioeconomics is not the only factor that can affect how well people cope. The trauma of migration, both recent and intergenerational, can impact how a person responds to impending fires. And even previous migration events, voluntary or involuntary, can also impact how wildfire evacuation goes. Some of our Canadian researchers, um, like Tyra McGee and Amy Christensen, have done research with um, tribes being evacuated, the first, first Nations, First Peoples up in Canada. And they're hesitant to go because they're being removed from their land again and evacuated somewhere else. And it brings back this intergenerational trauma of reservations. And I can see that with, you know, anybody who has a family member that's a recent immigrant from political conflict in any way, right, that's going to potentially raise some psychological kind of factors that are going to impact willingness to evacuate and the different ways that you are going to think about evacuating or not. U.S. Congressman Jared Huffman represents a long stretch of Northern California from just north of San Francisco all the way up to the Oregon border. Parts of the Bay Area, including sections of Sonoma County, are within his district. In his role as a congressman, he advocates for the environment and serves on the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. There are more than 25 federally recognized tribes in Huffman's district, more than any other U.S. congressional district outside of Alaska. 
He thinks deeply about social justice issues around disasters that face his constituents. He spoke about how, even though it's the Bay Area that gets most of the news coverage whenever there are fires, it's the less densely populated tribal regions farther north in California that cope more frequently with wildfires and poor air quality. I represent places that go through this every single year. Um, I could take you up to uh, the northern part of my district in the, the Hoopa Valley tribe area, for example, or areas along the Klamath River where um, you know the smoke is like what we experienced in the Bay Area almost every single summer. And these are impoverished communities that really don't have anywhere else to go. And some places don't have air conditioning or uh, places where they can be sure that they're getting clean air. Um, it has direct health effects. Uh, it has developmental effects on children who, uh, you know, have to continue to go to school and learn under those types of conditions. Um, so it's it's a real social justice uh, story as well, because in the Bay Area, you know, as, as bad as it got last year, a lot of folks had the resources where they could just go somewhere else for a little while, for, you know, a few days or a few weeks. Uh, you can't do that if you're living on uh, the reservation in the Yurok uh, tribe or, or the, the Hoopa Valley tribe. And here in wine country, Sonoma County, as well as Napa County next door, We are a destination location for millions of tourists every year who flock here to wander from winery to winery, tasting the Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Cabernet Sauvignon. But the grapes don't pick and process themselves. Many of the vineyard workers are immigrants from Mexico and Central America. Some are documented, but many are not. They work here without health care benefits, stable housing, or the rights most American-born workers have. Ag workers who are expected to tend these high-value crops uh, in vineyards uh, where even if the air quality is terrible, um, you can't afford to just stop uh, because you lose millions and millions of dollars. So the ag workers bear the brunt of, of that you know, risky scenario. I, I think it's one of the many reasons why you're seeing more mechanized farming because this is brutal, grueling work. I mean, even when the air is good, uh, in many parts of the state, the heat is oppressive. The health effects on folks out in these fields, uh, depending on the crops that they're tending, you know, they're exposed to chemicals as well. So it is it is really rough work, and we don't do nearly enough to support the farm workers who have to do it. Many of the migrant ag workers have fled other environmental disasters and climate change-induced stressors in their homelands. Well, we certainly discuss the movement of people as it relates to climate change when we talk about the southern border and the influx of, you know, these caravans and these these huge parties that depart Central America and and try to make it to the United States in really harrowing um, conditions and at great risk. Uh, They don't do that just on a whim, and there have been a number of really, I think, credible uh, analyses that point the finger at climate change, that climate impacts and droughts and crop failures are contributing to the movement of people. So this is an issue we tend to think about as immigration. We think about it as a humanitarian issue. We think about it as an economic issue. It's a climate issue, too. 
For people who have fled their homelands to escape harsh environmental conditions and the economic and social pressures that have been induced, at least in part by climate change, what are they escaping to? The past five years have, have really been where all of the distant projections and uh, you know future scenarios come into reality uh, far too quickly for uh, many parts of, of my district. This is no longer some distant uh, thing when we talk about extreme fires and droughts and other impacts of climate change. It, it is here and now in a big way. And you know the, the fire seasons alone that we've had in the last five years really tell the story. Immigrants and refugees are already escaping from traumatic conditions in their countries of origin. For those who have endured hardships that are incomprehensible to middle-class Americans, staying in Northern California and putting up with seasonal fires might be worth it. Because really, where else can they go? As Amanda Staswitz explains, you're going to face these repercussions of climate change just about anywhere you go. If not now, then soon. And I think under climate change and changing weather that it's it's become increasingly clear that that is, is going to be a pick your poison. It's either you're going to see the polar vortex giving you harsher winters in some of the safer states. We've got sea level rise for our coastal ones, wildfire, tornadoes, right? And all of these climatic changes are going to, to influence that. But it very much so is a pick your poison. So... Although the extreme fires, floods, and drought we've experienced in Sonoma County are devastating, every part of the world is going to experience some version of climate change disaster. Packing up and moving won't change things. These are human-induced disasters that need human solutions. Linda Hopkins explains. You know, when I first took the oath of office as a county supervisor more than four years ago, I never would have imagined that I would essentially spend the job in a constant state of emergency. And I do mean constant state of emergency. It has been fire, flood, and of course, most recently, the pandemic. And a declared disaster in local government lasts a lot longer uh, than the actual disaster itself, because we are essentially always in recovery mode here in Sonoma County. I have been through three severe record-setting wildfire seasons as well as um, one of the uh, floods of record in the lower Russian River, as well as one more minor flooding incident. And we are now at an unprecedented level of um, drought in Sonoma County. When you look at our reservoirs, they have never been this low at this point in the season ever before. And so um, it has been essentially one unprecedented uh, natural disaster after another. But I think the clear argument and the clear point is that these are not natural disasters. They are anthropogenic disasters as a result of climate change. And since these man-made disasters are hitting Sonoma County ahead of many other parts of the country, we have an opportunity to be a model in how we respond to disasters and how we change our lifestyles and policies so that we contribute less to climate change. I do hope that what we are going through in Sonoma County is a bit of a wake-up call because it is not just us. Um, We might be the canaries in the coal mines, um, but we're seeing the increased severity of hurricane season and people who are also constantly evacuated from their home due to hurricane risk or coming back to floodwaters and health impacts and long-term health impacts of those experiences. 
this is a reality that we are all going to have to confront. And I hope that we can have the sense of urgency around it that the moment demands. Addressing that urgency that Linda Hopkins describes can come in the form of government programs, policy changes, and the daily lifestyle choices we each make. Stacy Toole and her partner are choosing to stay and raise their four-year-old son in Sonoma County, at least for now. For Stacy, focusing on reducing her family's climate impact is an attempt at having agency over her life. In this post-fire life, in considering all of the many challenges facing you know, our, our world, but in particular in Sonoma County, where now we're looking at this exceptional drought and climate change and longer and more devastating fire seasons. And I'm also still really struggling with how to live here in a, what feels like a responsible earth centered ethical kind of way. And I've really struggled with things that for me seem sometimes kind of trivial, but they're not, but, but decisions about how to buy some of the material things or how to acquire material things that we once had. And it can be like really silly things like a trash can for your house or a bed or replace clothing. And I have felt almost at times paralyzed on how to make those decisions because I'm trying to do something that feels in alignment with the earth. So I'm trying to buy things that are responsibly made, uh, you know, or organic materials or sustainable materials, but then also struggling with sometimes those things feel financially <laughs> prohibitive to us. For Stacy, living in an environmentally conscious way is also an opportunity to teach her son and a way to encourage the next generation to act more responsibly toward the earth than the generations before them have acted. Maybe some of the ways that we live are definitely not the ways in which I was raised or my partner was raised, but we're teaching our son like these kind of ways to adapt to. Um, if it's if it's a really hot day, how do you cool yourself down? We don't have air conditioning in our house, so what else can you do? So he has a tiny little pool he can splash around in in the yard, or he knows we're gonna sit in the shade. <laughs> so yeah, I think I guess trying to teach him to to adapt to these realities of life. It's really all about adaptation. The world is changing rapidly, and all of us need to learn to adapt and teach our children to adapt. It feels really odd that my my son. He seems more adapted at four years old to smoke in the air, fire season, power outages. It's been part of his life, so he kind of understands it. So he doesn't seem very affected by needing to wear a mask because it's smoky or understanding kind of the consequences of fire season. And I don't like that that feels like normalized to him. Adaptation means different things to different people, depending on their age, family structure, and financial circumstances. For UC Davis student Seamus Reed, adapting will probably mean moving out of the area with his girlfriend Izzy, finding the rare spot that will be minimally affected by climate change disasters. I see a future in where I have to go and live somewhere where this isn't 
reality. And that's, that's part of my wanting to move out of the county. It's part of my wanting to live out of the state. I mean, of course, there are fun reasons to want to go and live somewhere fun. But uh, I, I, I don't want to live where that's a, a yearly fear. Seamus and Izzy have had serious discussions about where they could live that would keep them safe from fires. Her family is from Minnesota, and they've talked about moving there once they finish their undergraduate degrees. When undergraduate school is done, we can go live in Minnesota. And I would be totally fine freezing every single year if I didn't have to worry about packing up and leaving every single year. There's, I mean, there's something about uh, the security of the place you live. Just the idea that it will be there you know, as long as you live there and even after you're gone. And that's that sense of security is not, at least in my mind, present in Sonoma County anymore. Seamus wants to move past the traumas of the fires. He wants to move on with his life. I don't know how to move forward other than to leave. Stacy wants to move forward too, but she is at a completely different stage of life than Seamus. For now, she's figuring things out through music. Remember that song she described at the beginning of the episode? She was writing about the fires, but she couldn't write beyond the first verse. She describes what happened next. And then a a good friend of mine who is also a poet wrote me a poem. And I would say that she sent it to me in a time when I was in, in a pretty dark place. And I ended up using her lines with her permission um, as the second verse for the song that I couldn't complete myself. And her lines that I borrowed said, come and get your wings, they say. You've been underground too long. Come and get your wings, they say. The wind misses your song. Come and get your wings, they cry. The clouds want to see you fly. Come and get your wings, they cry. It's time for you to rise. And I felt like I had to borrow her words because I was still underground. And maybe I still am a little underground. <laughs> but it, it felt, it, it has felt really hard to keep that really hopeful phoenix rising spirit alive in me. And it has often felt really heavy and dark and like I don't I don't know where those wings are (laughs) maybe I'm maybe I'm at that third verse stage but I'm not quite sure what those words are yet I'm not quite sure how to sing that yet perhaps Stacy being at that third verse stage is a metaphor for the rest of us we're all in our third verse we want to rise but we're stuck. We want to be healthy and stable and start fresh, but can we do that here? If not, where do we go? That calculation, sometimes financial, sometimes emotional, sometimes medical, that calculation is different for each of us. And while we wrestle with it, we hope that Sonoma County will continue to be our home, that we will overcome this mess of our own making to return to a time of peace and tranquility and safety, and health. Of a time 
when October was memorable not for devastation, but for the golden glow that bathed our vineyards, our redwoods, and our rugged coastline. Until then, we here in Sonoma County live with repeating, relentless environmental disasters. We live in a chronic catastrophe. Come and get your wings, they say you've been underground too long. Come and get your wings, they say the wind misses your song. Come and get your wings, they cry, the clouds will see you fly. Come and get your wings, they cry, the time to rise, you will rise up like the morning sun. Catastrophe, a podcast brought to you by a grant from California Humanities through the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Emerging Journalist Fellowship Program. This episode was produced by me, Maritza Camacho, Lauren Spates, and Nick Vitas. The score was written by Fabian Middleman. Special thanks to James Demisio and to Anne Belden, our advisor at Santa Rosa Junior College, for her unwavering support and invaluable guidance. Episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.